should go ahead and uh, take your Bible and let's uh, turn back to the book of Job where we've been parked all year long. I looked the other day and we started this study back in January of this year. Um, I think I'm going to finish before 2012, so um, that's my encouragement. Who was it? Is it uh, I was reading, I think it was Calvin. Calvin had like 200 and some odd sermons on the book of Job. So count your blessings, right? Um, we're going to kind of shift gears here a little bit. And, and if you're brand new today or you haven't been here in a while, I try to uh, set some context for you. But uh, we have worked our way through the first 37 chapters of Job. And uh, we're kind of on the brink of the really the last section, um, the section where God appears he answers Job out of the whirlwind, and that sort of is the pinnacle of the book. And then there's a concluding um, uh, chapter at the end that sort of pulls all the pieces, all the loose ends together, uh, like any good story does. Um, but what I want to do, we, we've, we've talked about this a lot, and uh, I've promised you beforehand that at some point we're going uh, to unpack this. Uh, you'll remember that one, one of the biggest challenges of the book is the theology of the three friends. And we, we've talked about this before. Uh, and just by way of review, maybe you guys can jump in here and, and help us all gain a context here. If you could sum up, what is, what is the major premise of the three friends as they've tried to minister to Job and his suffering? What, what's the main premise that they've brought? He's suffering because he sinned. Okay, that Job is suffering because he sinned. Are we all okay on that? Uh, and, and you guys know Job, Job is this righteous, godly man that the first chapter goes out of its way to say there's just, there's just never been anybody like this guy in terms of his godliness and his righteousness. And uh, he is struck with uh, a multifaceted um, suffering event or events, really, um, that, that is unlike anything else in Scripture we've seen. And he's got these three friends that come to try to minister to him in the midst of that. And their, their counsel basically goes like this. Now, Job, innocent people don't suffer. So obviously there's something in your life. I, I know you're upright. I know you're godly. But there's something you're not telling us. There's something here that, that you need to tell us. What, what's the hidden life? What's the hidden sin that you have that you're not telling us about? And, and uh, that's, that's sort of the, uh, the argument of the three friends. And Job has done a really good job showing them that their theology is not accurate. We call that retributive theology. And that's what we want to talk about over the next few Sundays is um, we're going to try to make sense of Job's suffering by, by thinking about the, the counsel of the friends. And here's kind of the question I want to pose to you, and, and we'll try to answer this question over the next two, maybe three Sundays. What's wrong with that re retributive theology? What's wrong with the approach that just says, when I do what is right, God blesses me, and when I do what is wrong, God punishes me? That's retributive theology, and that's where the friends are coming from. If there's suffering in your life, it's because God is punishing you because of some sin. Now, now, just a footnote on this. I, I, I hope none of you watch those those uh, TV preachers. I, I hope you don't do that. I want to ask for a show of hands. But um, do you, do we see this on daytime Christian television? 
Do we see this? It looks a little bit different than Job, but we, we see this today in our culture, don't we? You know, God wants to bless you. And, and, and not eternally, I mean, heaven's nice. But God wants to bless you now. He wants to, he, he has these storehouses of blessing just waiting to be tapped into. If you will just make that call. Right? Isn't that how, and tell me, is that how it goes? Lisa doesn't let me watch these shows anymore, so you tell me. <laughs> it's true, right? Um, you know, make that call, send in that donation. Or, or maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not financial. Maybe it's um, you have to learn how to pray this special way. This special prayer, this special ritual, some sort of esoteric knowledge that nobody knows about except me. And, and you know, for 1995, I'll send you the pamphlet on how to do, or whatever it is. And, and that is, that is a, a, a mutation of it, but it goes right back to this. When we do what is right, God is obligated in some way to bless us. And can I just say that's a false gospel? That is not the biblical gospel. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, and we, we could we could spend you know weeks talking about the the prosperity gospel. Maybe we need to do that sometime, Terry. Just do an overview of the prosperity gospel because it's uh, it, it's alive and well. And, and there are there are old ladies who are sending in their social security check to these crooks every month, thinking that that's the key to their spiritual life. Um, so this, this, this is alive and well today in, in lots of form. There's another form of this. Um, some suffering comes into life and we say, man, what am I doing wrong? And we, we you get weighed down with this guilt of, well, maybe God's not happy with me. Maybe God is punishing me. Maybe, and, and this leads to this introspective, guilty lifestyle. So this is alive and well today. This is well worth talking about because it worked. It was it was there in in Job's life, and it's here in ours today. But what's wrong with this? That's what I want to try to um, think with you about over the next couple of Sundays. Let, let's start, maybe if we can, just by taking our Bibles and turning to Galatians chapter six. This is going to be a a multi book study here. We're going to leave Job for a little while, and. Um, well, I'll come. I was going to show you something in Job, but we'll come back to it now that you're already on your way to Galatians. Because the verse that typically comes to mind when we think about retributive theology, or you can thinking you can think of it as as vending machine theology. Uh, you know, you you put the good stuff in, you get the good stuff out, kind of thing. Uh, is Galatians chapter six is the passage that we typically think of? Uh, let's uh, pick it up in verse. Uh, seven here. Um, we're going to have to kind of parachute in here and, and then think about the context after the fact. But look at uh, Galatians chapter six, verse seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Okay. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's where we get the phrase "you reap what you sow." It's an agricultural metaphor. Right? If I go out and I plant an orange tree, 
I can expect that that tree is going to produce oranges, right? I'm going to reap whatever kind of seed or kind of tree that I sow. Now notice, look at how he he explains it here, uh, explains the metaphor in verses 8 and 9. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's interesting because I think very often we use this verse out of context, don't we? Well, he's just reaping what he's sown. And, and what, what this verse is specifically talking about is the principle of sowing and reaping in the spiritual realm. If you continue to walk in the flesh, live by the flesh, give over to the flesh, give into the desires of the flesh, what this says is you will reap corruption, spiritually speaking. Whereas if you sow to the Spirit, you walk by the Spirit, you, you're in step with the Spirit, as, as Galatians and Ephesians and Romans unpack, then you shall reap eternal life. So it's a spiritual sowing and reaping that is primarily in view here. Okay, But we understand the principle, and, and we see it applied in other areas. The, the spiritual life is the one we see here in Galatians uh, 6, 7. Um, your spiritual life, your spiritual health is dependent on what you're sowing. Are you trusting Christ? Are you clinging to Him? Are you relying on His Spirit? That leads to spiritual health. But when you sow to the flesh, walk in the flesh, that leads to corruption. But you know, this is also true in other areas of life. How about this one? How about in the area of natural consequences? Do people reap what they sow in terms of sort of the natural consequences of their behavior? Let let me show you what I mean. Flip back to Proverbs chapter 6. Let's look at this together. The book of Proverbs is largely a book that teaches you about sowing and reaping. Now, Proverbs is mainly written by a parent to a child. It both teaches us how to be parents in one regard, and it also teaches children how to walk in the fear of the Lord. So it has that sort of dual purpose in it. But a lot of what uh, Solomon is going to speak about here is just sort of this general theme of, you know, if you make these types of decisions, if you make bad decisions, there are bad consequences that are usually associated with that. If you make good decisions, then there are good consequences that are generally associated with that. Uh, just We can pick anywhere in Proverbs. I, I pick chapter 6 because I think it... it um, shows this fairly clearly here. Uh, let's look um, in chapter 6, verse 4. Do not give... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 6. Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. Let's just stop there. What's the main principle that Solomon is teaching in those verses there? What is it? Okay, if you don't work, you won't have food. Someone else? Laziness? Okay, if if you are unprepared and lazy and like a sluggard, a wonderful term, biblical term there, you're going to tend, look what it says there, poverty, need, want. 
And obviously in that culture, that was literally true, wasn't it? If you didn't get up and go to work, your family could starve in that day. This is, this is a culture that, that we can barely even dream about in, in the day of handouts and government subsidies and food stamps and, you know, well, I'm not going to say there, there's no poverty at this level in our country, but the vast majority of it is nothing like the poverty that, um, at least in our country, obviously other countries that's, that, that is true, but, um, yeah, that's what he's saying. If, if you're lazy and sluggardly and you aren't working and you aren't planning, you aren't, um, preparing food in the summertime and gathering it in the harvest, then what happens when winter comes? You have nothing and you might starve. See, that, that's sort of this natural consequences of you reap what you sow. If you're lazy, you risk poverty and, and death because of lack of food. Uh, if you're wise and you put those things away and you prepare, uh, then you enjoy the benefits of that. And again, that's just one example of dozens and dozens and dozens in Proverbs. But there's sort of this natural consequence issue of reaping what you sow. Okay, does that make sense? There's another level, and I'm going to show you this here. Um, flip over to Deuteronomy 27. This is also true in what I'm going to call divine consequences. We'll talk more about this probably next Sunday. But um, look at this with me. This is one of those chapters that um, is very, very eye-opening. Okay? As you're turning to Deuteronomy 27, let me set this up for you. Deuteronomy 27, I'm sorry, the book of Deuteronomy, as the name implies, is the second telling of the law. Uh, Deuteronomos, right? Uh, the, the second telling of the law. It's, it's Moses' last sermon before he dies. Remember God says because he disobeyed, he, stro- he struck the rock instead of spoke to the rock. And uh, so God says you're not, you're not going to enter the promised land. So his, his last great thing that he did was he got up, he preached his final sermon to the people, and then he wanders up to the top of the mountain, he looks across the Jordan, he sees Palestine, and then he dies. Okay, So this, this is that final stage of Moses' life as he retells the law, as he preaches to a brand new generation, and he recounts the law. And, and if we were to spend the first... Uh, Look at the first 26 chapters there. We would see a retelling of the law found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Okay, so he gets to the end of that, right? He gets to the end. He lays out the law. And then he says this, okay? Um, uh, where is it here? Tw- chapter 27, verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do His commandments. Now, he's just laid it all out, right? So he's laid out all the commandments. Now he says, you must do the commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. And Moses, verse 11, also charged the people on that day, saying, when you cross the Jordan... These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And then he names the, the 12 tribes there and then some, uh, some other people. Now, and then what's interesting, starting in chapter 15 and following all the way through part of chapter 28, he's going to say, look, if you do what I'm telling you to do, here are the blessings. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, here are the judgments or the cursings. Okay, now let me just, we're not going to read the whole thing, but just let me give you an idea. 
Verse 15, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Okay, it's in the congregation response. Verse 16, Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Verse 17, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Verse 18, Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. And he goes through 18, 19, 20, 26, chapter 28, and he comes all the way down and he gives all these cursings. Okay? And then, chapter 28, verse 1, Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if if you will obey the Lord your God. And then he gives some blessings. Verse 3, Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of the ground. And you get the idea? In, and this is very important. In enacting the Mosaic law, so this is specific to the nation of Israel here now, okay? But in enacting the Mosaic law, God attached to the law blessings and cursings if they would obey or if they chose to disobey. And God said, mark my words, if you do what I'm telling you, you can count on all these blessings. If you don't, then these judgments will come. Okay, That's a third form of what we might call the sowing and reaping principle because it deals with divine consequences. Israel had externally imposed divine consequences depending upon whether they obeyed God or not. Okay, You follow that? So we've got what we might call Consequences in the spiritual life, the sowing and reaping we saw in Galatians. Consequences in the, in the natural realm, just sort of basic stuff. You know, if you make wise decisions, good things tend to follow. If you make bad decisions, then bad things tend to follow. But that, now we've got a third dimension where God is saying, I will impose blessings or judgments dependent on what you do. Now, again, that's specific to the nation Israel. So we don't, the last thing we want to do is read these and go, okay, well, these apply to me. Because okay, we're not Israelites. We're not the nation of Israel. But let me show you another passage in Scripture that does speak to all believers. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, and let's look at this verse together. Are you tracking with me on this? I, I'm trying to show you that the sowing and reaping principle in, uh, is, is true, biblically speaking, in these different realms. And uh, nowhere do we see this true in terms of the divine consequences than in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, and um, this is in, um, follows that great chapter on the faith of the Old Testament saints there. Um, Look at verse 5, and we'll just kind of pick it up here. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Okay. Now, the writer to Hebrews is speaking more broadly here, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all believers. Okay. For, uh, chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he does what? He disciplines. 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. That's a quote uh, going back to the book of Proverbs. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We'll stop right there. He, he continues on. But what, what, what's the point of that chapter or those verses? What, what, what's he trying to say? Yeah, God loves us enough to correct us. And, and notice the metaphor. When we trust Christ, God adopts us into his family. Romans chapter 8, right? We become a part of his family. And just like earthly fathers are given charge to discipline their ch- children, to train their children, so God, as our father, as our parent, so to speak, loves us enough to discipline and train and correct us. Okay, So though we, we cannot apply the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy, because those are specific to Israel, we can sort of zoom out a little bit and say, well, God is saying here that if we're part of his family, we can expect discipline because he's a loving father. Because he corrects us because he loves us. Okay, He doesn't get specific. He doesn't tell us how he does that or what he's going to use to do that. But he does tell us we can count on his wise fatherly discipline when his children need correction. Okay, so, so again, what I want to show you here is this general principle of reaping what you sow is true, and it's true in those three areas uh, of, of life as we've seen them in Scripture. Okay, And you say, okay, well, if that's true, if that's true, why is the theology of the three friends wrong? Okay, why is it wrong? Well, I think it's wrong because there are more factors than just unpacking what the Bible says about reaping what we sow. And just a footnote on that. Do you guys understand that we get in all sorts of trouble in Scripture when we take one thing the Bible says and we ignore everything else it says? Or we'll take one thing the Bible says and we'll raise it up and say, hey, this is the most important thing to the detriment of all the other things that it says. You follow me on that? We get in all sorts of trouble in any area of theology when we don't balance the whole counsel of God. And that's exactly the problem that the friends fell into. They took a truth, reaping what you sow, out of Scripture, but they didn't balance it with all the rest of what Scripture says. And they end up with a wrong view because of the imbalance. So what I want to do is add what I might call four balancing factors here. And and you'll forgive me, I could not figure out for the life of me how to do this in PowerPoint without paying $29.95 for the, uh, for the special plug-in. So, so let me, can I, can I just think with you visually, for, uh, with you about this for a minute, okay? Um, can you guys see this, okay? You see that? Okay. Um, There is a God in heaven. Okay? And Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. You remember that? Okay, so there's a God in heaven, and and he 
does whatever he pleases. Okay? We've got to start there when we think about the theology of the friends because God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. If if we don't start there, if we start with some artificial standard that we try to impose on God, again, we get in all sorts of trouble. So God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And he... The way he interacts in life is what we call his providence. Okay? He, he is over his creation. He's working in his creation. He's, he's carrying out his plan. He's doing whatever he pleases, and that gets fleshed out in real life through his providence. Now, as we think about retributive theology, I, I kind of think of it like a puzzle. And this is what I, I couldn't figure out how to do in PowerPoint. So if any of you are PowerPoint geniuses and you want to clue me in on how to do this, um, I won't pay you twenty nine ninety five, but maybe half of that, okay? Maybe think of it like this. That's my attempt to draw puzzle pieces, okay? Which is why you can see why I wanted to get a, a PowerPoint slide to do this, because... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the ushers, please come forward for the offering so we can... Uh... All right. There are, there are four balancing factors here, and I'll go ahead and put them up here for you. And without these four factors we end up in the ditch in terms of understanding retributive theology. Okay, So here's the four puzzle pieces. We have to have, first of all, a comprehensive understanding of suffering. Part of the reason the friends got in trouble is they had a lopsided view of suffering. Okay. The second thing we have to understand, we have to have a, a good understanding of time and eternity. That, that's the perspective part of suffering, okay? The second thing we need to, or the third thing we need to have is we need to have a handle on what we might call the declarations and promises of God. If we don't understand that God has imposed declarations, covenants, promises on his people, then that leads us to get confused in terms of why he does what he does sometimes. And then the last puzzle piece, and and it's probably the most important, is we have to have a firm understanding of the character of God. Okay? Now, I told you last week, I've told you almost every week that we've done Job, the book of Job is about the character of God. It's about teaching us what God is really like. So at the end of the day, even though suffering in Job is the vehicle, what God really wants to communicate in the book of Job is who he is. Okay? And what we're going to do is we're going we're to figure out these puzzle pieces over the next couple of weeks. That's what we're going to try to do here. Okay? Because if we, if we miss one of the pieces, we have a puzzle that's not complete. And we end up with a wrong view of how we think about suffering. So let's, can we just jump right into this? Can we pick that first puzzle piece? Let's think about suffering, okay? We have to have a comprehensive understanding of suffering if we're going to understand why 
people suffer sometimes. Okay. Now, again, the only tool in the toolbox of the friends is people suffer because of what? Divine judgment because of personal sin. Now, this is going to be a little bit of review, but let's go ahead and walk through these here. We do suffer because of personal sin, right? Didn't we see that in Proverbs? You might starve to death if you're not diligent, if you're lazy. People do suffer because of their own sin. That is absolutely 100% true, right? But you know what else is true? Sometimes people suffer because of the sins of others. Can I show you this? Um, Read Genesis sometime. You know, chapter 1, chapter 2, it's paradise. It's God's creation. Everything is very good. And then you flip the page to chapter 3 and you go, "Uh uh-oh. And Genesis, um, you know, you, you could do a you could do a study on the book of Genesis and call it all the bad sins of the Bible. They're all there in Genesis. We're not we're not even we're not even into the rest of the Bible yet, and we start seeing this. Look at Genesis chapter four. We'll just show you a couple examples of this. Sometimes people suffer because of personal sin, and that's true, right? Isn't it true also? Sometimes people don't suffer because of their sin. Sometimes people get away. I mean, how many times have you heard, you know, um, family of four killed in car accident driving to grandma's house on Thanksgiving Day by a drunk driver? And how many times is that drunk driver fine? And, And the innocent party, so to speak, was the one with the the injury, the major injury, or they're the one with the fatality. That happens all the time, doesn't it? We say, well, why does the drunk guy get away? Well, sometimes people suffer because of personal sin. Sometimes they don't. And at the same time, sometimes an innocent family suffers because of the sins of that drunk driver. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel bringing their sacrifices to the Lord. Verse 5, uh, or, I'm sorry, verse 4, Abel uh, uh, brings his offering. God had regard for Abel and his offering, verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desires for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Right there. So so we're one chapter into the fall, and all of a sudden we've got murder. We've got first-degree, premeditated, cold-blooded murder. Um, Suffering because of the sins of others. Uh, Flip the page here. And uh, flip over to go go past the flood. Let's get into this patriarchs period. What about Lot? He made some really bad decisions that other people suffered in, right? Uh, what about uh, Sarai, Abraham's uh, wife, and her foolish decisions? 
affecting others, including the Pharaoh, right? Her, her lies and deception affects the Pharaoh so that he almost commits adultery with her because of that. Uh, we see Abraham, Abraham, he's got this promise of God and, and uh, he thinks, well, my wife can't have kids, so maybe I need to go marry her, her um, maid, Hagar. So you see the sin over and over and over. We see people suffering because of the sins of others all throughout the book of Genesis. Um, it kind of peaks at, at Tamar and, and the rape of, of a family member. Um, but the, suffering happens because of the sins of others. And, and very often we come in and we read our prayer request list and there's suffering on there because of the sins of other people. There's a third reason we suffer. We suffer because we live in a fallen world, right? What, what, kind, of, what kind of types of suffering would fit into this category here? Just sort of we live in a fallen world type of suffering. Cancer. Yeah, cancer, sickness. What else? Accidents. Calamities. Calamities. Weather, weather-related incidents. Remember back in the book of Job? What ended up killing his, his kids? Do you remember? It was a tornado or a storm of some sort that collapsed the walls of the house and, and crushed all of his children. You, you say, well, that, that's, you know, that, just, that stuff just happens, right? People have accidents, people where it's not really a particular person's fault. It's just we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. Romans 8 says the whole creation groans because when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God imposed a judgment on creation. He literally cursed the creation so that this world tends to wind down. Things tend to get worse. Things like sickness and, and death would fit in there too, right? I mean, assuming someone doesn't kill somebody else, why do people die? Was that God's plan? No, that wasn't God's plan. His plan was that people um, people w- would live. Death, Death is a a foreign judgment imposed on people because of sin. So we suffer because we live in a fallen world. What about this? Have we seen this in Job? We suffer because of satanic or demonic activity. Satan was the one behind all of Job's sufferings, even though Job, Satan used the Chaldeans, right? And he used weather to bring those things about. Um... I was reading this uh, uh, to the to the kids the other night. You guys remember um, uh, Jesus shows up in um, the city, and there's these two guys that are demon possessed. Do you remember that? And and they are so violent. Everybody kind of says, "Okay, we're just going to kind of let them have this little corner of the city, and and we'll we'll stay over here with everybody else." And they're so you and G, the Gospel of Matthew says. Um, People couldn't even pass by that way because they were so violent. They were afraid what would happen um, if they were walk- to walk by those people that were possessed by demons. You think those people suffered because of demons and Satan? Absolutely. And you know the story. Jesus shows up and the, the demons recognize him. It's interesting. And uh, they ask to be... What's that? Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I think it should be the less demonic um, activity like this that's stated in Jesus' 
And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is one of those where, you know, we're not going to know for sure if that's going on most of the time. Um, But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And then the last area is uh, suffering because of divine judgment. And I have up there Exodus 32. Um, Anybody know Exodus 32? What's that? That's the golden calf. Golden calf, right? What happens? Moses comes down the mountain. He sees the blatant idolatry. Just a few chapters earlier, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember that? And he comes down the mountain. He, he was delayed a little bit, right? And so they got impatient. They thought, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know what happened to this. Let's, let's make a God. And then they bow down to him and they say, this is Yahweh. This is the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt. And they commit blatant idolatry. Yeah, I, I threw the gold in and out came the calf. Yeah, it's, it's, a pretty, it's actually kind of funny in the, in the Hebrew. Um, it is, you know, out popped the calf. And you remember, God gives them one opportunity to repent and then what happens? He kills everybody else. So what's that? That's suffering because of divine judgment. In that case, it was death. Other cases, it's plagues. If you get into Kings and Chronicles, how did God judge the people then? What did he do? What's that? Uh, Famines. And then ultimately, what did he do? He brought in the Assyrians for the northern kingdom, the Babylonians for the southern kingdom, and made them exiles, took them away. What is that? That's divine judgment. So you see, do you see how we have to have a comprehensive understanding of suffering? Now, this is a great time to kind of pull the car over and and note this very important precept, okay? It is dangerous to try to interpret the providence of God in this stuff. It is dangerous to try to interpret the providence of God in suffering. Now, if a, if a hurricane comes and we say, oh, okay, you know, hurricanes happen, right? But to say, well, Satan's doing this. This is your fault because of some sin in your life. It is dangerous to try to interpret the providence of God in suffering. And that's exactly the problem that the three friends fell into. Do you remember in those later chapters... You know, Job, there's some sin in your life. No, there's not. Job, there's some sin in your life. No, there's not. Job, we really think there's some sin in your life. I'm telling you, there's no sin that I know of. Remember that? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So then what do they say? Job, we've seen a couple widows you didn't take care of. We've seen a couple orphans that you looked the other way at. And what do they start doing? They start trying to guess. Do you know how dangerous that is? This is the reason you're suffering. And we've said it before, we'll say it again. Be very, very, very careful when you're ministering to somebody who's suffering in terms of telling them what you think the real problem is. Okay. Now, what's the point for, for our purposes here? The point is not all suffering is the result of personal sin or divine discipline. Can you see that? That, these, are, these are two categories of five. And in, in the friend's theology, they said there's only one category, personal sin leading to divine discipline. And that got them into trouble. They, see, they didn't get this piece of the puzzle right. They had, you know, that corner of the puzzle. 
but they didn't have the whole piece. Yeah, Ruth. There might be another thing for that. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. That's right. And I appreciate you saying that because what does this represent? What does providence represent? Providence represents God doing whatever he pleases for his own glory and purpose. Okay? Right? That that's um that's the wide angle lens of scripture, isn't it? That's the big picture view of what God is always doing. He is doing whatever he pleases for his own glory and purpose. So what I like to do, as anytime we talk about this, and I appreciate you saying that, Ruth, what I like to do is kind of put an umbrella over the top of all, the, all five of those things and say, ultimately, ultimately suffering is happening for God's glory and purpose. Because he is above all of those things. Does that make sense? So you're absolutely right. There's a sense in which we can say, whatever the suffering, God is always glorifying himself and working his good purpose in that, regardless of whatever the category it is. But because he's always doing that, I I tend to kind of think of it as the umbrella over the top of that particular uh, puzzle piece there. Okay. Um, Do I want to get into this? I don't. Okay, what's back? What's back? Is that enough to think about for one day? Yeah, let's talk about time and eternity in two minutes. Yeah, that's... All right. Well, yes. You have your chuckle of the day. Well, let's, um, let's go ahead and, and put a comment on our notes there, and then um, we'll come back and see if we can put some of these other pieces together, okay?